Welcome to The Future Belongs to Creators. I'm your host, Barrett Brooks. I'm the COO at ConvertKit. My co-host is our CEO, Nathan Barry. We're on a mission to help creators earn a living, and this is a show about turning anxious energy into creative output during times of uncertainty. It's the future belongs to creators. I'm Barrett Brooks, and I tricked you. I'm not solo today. I know you're all mourning that fact. Haley Janicek is here with me. Haley, as you know, is going to be one of your new co-hosts come the first of the year, which is super exciting. Um, Haley, you know how this goes. How are you doing? Oof, gosh. Well, today's Friday, so I can't complain. I think I'm feeling green. Uh, we just had, if anybody watched, we had a creator session just was just released with an artist go, who goes by his surname, Goldford. His full name is Jeffrey Goldford. And if I could cuss, I would, I would just say he's effing awesome. I don't know if, I don't know if cussing is allowed on this podcast or not. I don't know either. <laughs> uh, so I won't do it, but he was awesome. Super fun to work with. And I thought his episode was awesome. So I'm feeling green because that just happened. That is great. Every time I watch one of our creator sessions, it makes me happy and uh, it makes me feel more connected to our work. I am also greenish, yellow greenish, chartreuse, if you will, uh, as all the longtime listeners will appreciate. Yeah, we're all the way in rainy season around here. I know no one cares. I share it anyways. It is the end of the year. I feel like there's always pressure to just like get things wrapped up. However, I am taking, I guess, close to 10 days off at the end of the year, which would be really nice. I'm looking forward to that. And then um, hmm, what else is going on? I don't know. It's been a good year. We've got some momentum. We uh, have hired a VP of product who's starting at the beginning of the year. We're, I think, close to maybe hiring a VP of engineering, which is really exciting. So we've got some good momentum going into uh, 2021. I am also curious on why you always talk about the weather, because everyone knows that it's always rainy in Portland. <laughs> Except for like the three months when it's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So just most I'd... of the time, I only talk about it when it's not rainy and how it is positively affecting my mood. Uh, except for um, all those times you tell everyone that it is rainy. It's true, I know. <laughs> Give me a break. Okay, it's Q&A Friday. If you're here, it means you're here to ask questions. Um, we got a couple of them ahead of time on Twitter. Um, so we'll dive into those first. If you're here live, drop them in the chat. You jump straight to, this, to the front of the line. And if we run out of questions, we'll just entertain ourselves. But we've got several good ones. The first two, I'm going to ask the easier one first. I'm going to have to put some thought into the first one that we got. Okay, Teddy. Hey, Teddy. What surprising lessons have you learned growing a software company? Hey, you're the COO, man. <laughs> um, what surprising lessons have I learned growing a software company? I think uh, one of the first ones that might surprise a lot of people is that it's, it's well, maybe it won't. I have no idea. It's not rocket science. And so much of growing a software company is just trial and error and figuring out what works. And so I've been surprised the degree to which we've been able to grow without having everything figured out. I hear that as a common takeaway from a lot of founders and, uh, and leaders who have grown big companies. You know, it's, it's not like they, even Airbnb who uh, just IPO'd, like, I don't think they 
at the leadership level feel like they have it figured out. They're still trying to figure it out every day. So that's the first thing. Uh, I think a lot of people might assume that companies that take off and have really great growth paths feel like they have it all figured out and they know exactly why they're growing. Newsflash, we don't. I don't know, you got one? I'll probably come up with more. Yeah, I think I, I used to work at a, a software company called T-Sheets that was acquired by Intuit, and I was there for a while. Before that, I was at a another company called uh, Clearwater Analytics and another SaaS company. And I, I think since I had always had like a sales and business development background, right, you have this little bit of a chip on your shoulder that you're the one that makes the company grow, right? Like it's it's sales is is what um, you know gets you to the next level. And it it took me a while to learn, probably more specifically, I learned this at T-Sheets, customer service and support is the lifeblood of any company. And the better support people experience and the better experience that you can give your customers, the faster your company is going to grow. And I, and at least for me, I've seen in the last, you know, including ConvertKit, you know, the three software companies I've been a part of with a bad support system and bad, you know, bad customer support, your business isn't going to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. And, and as a, as a, like I said, as a salesperson, as a business development person, that's not, you want to hear that it's, it's you, but it wasn't, it wasn't me. It's, it's all support. Yeah. I think, um, I would even boil that into the bucket of just kind of customer experience, like the overall feeling of taking care of people, the thing about companies is that everyone has their guard up against them. They feel like uh, as a as a consumer, as a customer, that you're trying not to get taken advantage of from with every company that you work with or buy from. And I know I live my life trying to find companies that I don't feel that way about. Like I like to buy from companies where the quality is high, they care about their customers, they do the right thing. And trying to run that kind of company is hard, number one. It's hard to get it right anyway. It's not hard to have those desires. It's hard to get it right. And it makes a huge difference, I think. It really is a competitive advantage. Golly, I feel like there's probably hundreds of lessons. Uh, I guess one recent one that I'll share is, um, well, two. One is that to build a team that in aggregate has diversity, you have to make a concrete effort. You can't end up with a team who is diverse without trying or at least maybe as two white males in the senior most roles, we weren't going to end up with a company that had representation of the broader market of the broader world without trying intentionally. We're still not where we want to be, but we've made substantial progress towards being the kind of company we aspire to be in that area that is representative of our customers, representative of the broader market. And ideally just kind of like a beacon of hope of what a company can be in the software and technology industries. I think a lot of people have kind of written it off as it's always going to be broken. It's always going to be very biased towards uh, white males, basically. So related to that is recruiting is a hell of a tool for hiring great people. You came to us by being recruited. Charlie Prangley, who many of y'all have heard on the show, came to us by being recruited. Many of our new teammates, both of our uh, in these senior leadership roles, hopefully will fill the engineering one by the end of the year. All of those candidates and the finalists were recruited as well. You can't just rely on people to come to you. And I think that's true of great customers too. You know, sometimes you got to go out and get the great customers. It's one of the things that's been really fun and interesting about creator sessions is that a substantial number of those people have become customers of ours, but they weren't going to come knocking. 
the best customers sometimes, the best employees, the best teammates are probably busy doing what they do because that's what makes them great. And you got to go make a compelling pitch to them to get them to get on board with you and, and serve the mission. So I think those would be two big things is you really got to be intentional about creating the kind of company you say you want to be. It's not going to just happen because you want it. And then also that recruiting is a huge tool for hiring. Um, I'll, I'll share one more and then maybe you can share if you have any others and then we'll move on. Last one is that great culture in terms of taking care of people does not on its own lead to great performance. And that was a thing that I believed for a long time was that if you created an environment where people were taken care of, they were psychologically safe, they were supported and, and empowered, that that would, that would just unlock all of the potential. That doesn't automatically create expertise and experience in the industry and knowing what to do next in order to drive progress. It just creates an environment where people feel safe to learn and try things and to try to do their best and who have a desire and a commitment to doing their best. You still have to choose the right things to work on. You still have to coach people to become more skilled and more developed in their area of the business. And, and you still have to hold them accountable. You know, you, there is this holding people accountable. This is probably similar to like toddler parenting logic, holding someone accountable does not mean you don't love them and care for them and want the best for them. Um, it can actually exist alongside creating really healthy, caring, loving culture. And, um, and I think I did not realize that until probably the last year, maybe two years, but especially the last year that there's this other element, which is, um, really coaching and developing people up to be very good at their part of the business. And then also holding them accountable to, showing up as their best, you know, even if they have the desire, that doesn't mean everyone will show up at their best every day. I know that is true for me. And in order for me to do that, um, really it comes down to like Nathan and I holding each other accountable at our level so that we're not slacking off, um, and that we're setting a good example. And I think that needs to cascade down through the organization to get, to get good results. Yeah. So something else that I think is really special about ConvertKit that's different than other places that I've been, is the idea that ConvertKit is created and built by creators themselves. You know, like so many of our team members are creators. Now being, you know, fully transparent, I still think we have a long way to go in that, in that understanding our customers and our customers' needs is one of the things that I think separates us from, you know, a lot of our competitors because so many, so many of us, including yourself, including myself, are trying to do that same thing on the side. But I think that you know, like we could still be so much better at that. Right. I mean, we have, you know, one, one example is the music industry, right? We're going, working on trying to get more customers in the music industry. We know that our software serves them, but we don't have a musician on our team who's doing the grind like a musician does. Right. So we have a lot to learn there. And I think that is something in recruiting um, especially for us, but you know, for other software companies that are trying to do this is recruit people who know what you do, right? Like recruit people who are invested in the things like right now I am embedded in the music space and I have learned so much just by having these conversations with musicians about how hard it is for them to get their mind out of the creative mode and into the business side of things. And that is something that, um, you know, only a creator understands. And so I think, you know, as you were talking about recruiting, that was the thing that kept popping into my mind is you can recruit the best salesperson 
in the world, but if they cannot connect to a creator, they're not going to do anything. You can create the best and you, you could hire the best engineer, right? But if they don't understand the challenges that a creative has when they're in a software product, like what's the point, right? Yeah. Yeah. You have to have one of two things, either a strong desire to understand or a fundamental, like personal understanding. And that's something we filter for in our culture contribution interviews is, is we're kind of unequivocal about you have to either have essentially be a strong fan of creators of some kind so that you see and understand their journey, or you need to be one yourself, ideally both, you know, given everything else being equal. Uh, yeah, I totally agree with you, Haley. Paul Graham has some great writing on this. He just wrote one about like how to ace your, your Y Combinator interview. He's one of the founders of Y Combinator. And one of the things he says is that they look for founders who get the market either from having been the market or from having been in the market for a long time, but that that's the number one differentiator. If you understand the needs of the people you're serving, you have a much greater chance of succeeding. I think that applies directly to being a creator as well. If you understand who you're for and what they need and what they have in common, you're going to have a much higher chance of, of resonating with them over time. Cool. Uh, next question. We're going to go to a live stream one or a, a chat one. Pierre says, you said in a previous podcast, oh, he's holding me, holding me accountable to things I've said in the past. That's not good. <laughs> Uh-oh. You said in a previous podcast that you should launch a product with three emails. What kind of email sequence do you recommend after that? Like info, email, email to destroy objections, et cetera. Um, okay. So I think what I was talking about when I said you can launch a product with three emails is that if you are getting bogged down in how to launch a product and like how much you need to communicate, simplify and limit yourself to three emails. And the three emails I would send in that case are number one, an informational email. Uh, ideally you would send like an advanced kind of pre-launch type thing, previewing what you're making. But at launch, the first one is here is the product. I would think of that as like an email version of a sales page. You want to address, um, the problem that people experience, you want to address the, the kind of copywriting technique I always think about is a story, like an anecdote to capture people's imagination and hook them in a problem that you're solving for them. And then the problem underneath the problem that most people don't see, which is like the, the magic thing that you're going to actually help them solve. So let's say like uh, an example from James Clear's book would be you're not working out. That's your problem. And he would posit that your actual problem is that you have bad habits around initiating the workout habit. And so to solve for that, put your workout clothes right next to your bed. If your intention is to work out in the morning so that you get up, you put your workout clothes on and now you're one step closer, something like that. So to address the problem behind the problem, propose the solution, which would be your product, outline how it helps them solve the problem behind the problem, and then a call to action. So that's the first email. It's just like, what is it? What's the problem you're solving? Why did they buy it? The second email in this like hypothetical three email thing would be an FAQ email. Here's the secret behind almost every FAQ thing on the internet. They're not frequently asked questions. They're like a couple people ask the question. And so you're going to treat it like it's an FAQ. Because in this case, it's more frequently asked than anything else, which is uh, if it's been asked once, it's frequently asked. So that email is a, it's basically taking objections that come in the form of questions and saying, 
here are the answers to these things. So is this for me? Okay, well, you tell them who it's for. Why does it cost whatever it costs? And you tell them why it's valuable and how it's going to deliver way more than what they pay for it. Whatever the questions are, ideally, you will have gotten some replies to that first one with real questions that can help seed it. And then the third one is a social proof email. So it would be like either an in-depth story of one person that you've helped either through your product or service in the past that you can quote. If this is a new product, maybe this is someone who you had test it ahead of time or like use it and give you feedback. And this is a story about how it impacted them or how it changed them as a result of using it. So let's say you're a, you're a designer you know, what was the impact of your website redesign for a client? And you would tell that story, maybe even in their words, that's one way to do it. Or it's a collection of quotes from people who you've worked with in the past about why your work is valuable. In that last email, you don't just want to give people social proof though. Uh, you want to close with a reiteration of what the product is and why they should buy it. And so you transition from um, if you're still hesitant after knowing what it is and having your questions answered, here's other people. You don't have to trust me, trust these people. And then a reiteration of, remember, if you've got this problem, I'm solving it with this product, buy it today, you know, early bird price ends whenever. And that can be a really valuable tactic is to give people a discount up front if they go ahead and buy and then remove that discount to give them some sense of urgency. Well, um, I don't know if that's the question he was asking, but- that's well, the this, outline of that season. This was great because we launched uh, on Happy Happy Houseplant. I la we launched a, a plant food product. And, uh, you know, I work for an email marketing company, right? Or a, a platform for creators. And um, I may not have the second email sequence set up <laughs> for my own products. So thank you very much for that outline. Go. Took some notes myself. Nice. Pierre, I think you might have been asking, what do I send after that? So... That's basically a reiteration of what I was getting at before. But what I would send after that is what I would call like a greatest hits or an evergreen newsletter. Most people who are creators have some form of content that they publish. Um, even if you create physical products, you usually have some form of content you're publishing to attract an audience, right? Most of the time that content applies regardless of when it was published. Like you might've published something five years ago that's still equally applicable today. But people who enter your audience today are unlikely to ever uncover that old thing unless they're like weird and they go digging in your archives. And one problem a lot of people experience as a creator is that they feel like they're on a hamster wheel. Uh, I got to publish another thing. My publishing day is Tuesday. I don't know what to say. You buy yourself a lot of time and a lot of trust with a new audience if you early on in the journey say, here's the greatest hits of things that I've published or things that I've shared in the past. And so you might give them, uh, I think about it in terms of sequencing. If you could take someone through a journey of your work, either as a musician, let's say your, your greatest songs or as a writer, you know, your greatest essays in the order that you think will help them develop an appreciation for your work or develop an understanding of themselves, take them on a journey and send them one at a time. And I would space those out maybe once or twice a week. By doing that, you could create a highly engaged audience member without publishing anything new. At one time, I think like Pat Flynn, for example, who's a blogger, he had a year long intro sequence of his best content from all time. And so if you think about that, if an engaged subscriber is kind of your goal as a person using an email tool like ConvertKit or a platform like ConvertKit, 
That means you need them to very quickly get something they want from you so that they keep opening and clicking on your emails. Well, great. Give them your best stuff right up front of all time. And then you buy yourself time. You might have the most engaged person ever without publishing anything new, three, six, nine months in. And now they can get onto the hamster wheel with you. And even if you publish infrequently at that point, they've gotten enough from you over time on a frequent basis that they're not going to hold that against you. So anyways, I would send a greatest hits sequence. That's a good example. I think uh, the probably the most practical example though, like in, on the internet today for people who do that really well are food bloggers because food is always going to be evergreen for the most part, right? Like there's some seasonality in there for the most part, but somebody comes to your website, right? You, they download an ebook, whatever the case may be, but then on the food site, you get them in your email sequence, maybe whatever it is you're selling them. But then you say, Hey, look at all this old content I've done. And it just, that's probably one of the biggest time savers that people can do is just recycle old content. And like I said, food bloggers do that really well. For sure. For sure. Um, okay. Noah asked on Twitter, tell embarrassing stories about Nathan. Ooh, uh, we're not going to do that to him. I'm into that. In fact, did you question. not see the question that I, I'm not so great at Instagram, forgive me. Okay. But I posted on my Instagram, a question box for last week, you know, cause I was hosting with Miguel, not going to lie. I was slightly nervous and Nathan, I don't know if you watched this, but Nathan wrote into my question box on Instagram and said, why is Barrett Brooks, in your expert opinion, why is Barrett Brooks such a high maintenance person to work for (laughs) or work with? I can't remember exactly what he said. So that was Nathan heckling you. So I'm all in for heckling Nathan today. Okay. He shared this story publicly. I'll I'll share this one and then we'll get to the actual question. So our son just heard one year's one year old, uh, my wife and my son, not Nathan and my son. And Before he came last August, I decided that I wanted to do a trip with friends, like kind of last trip with friends before we had a kid, not unlike a bachelor party, it would be, we called it a a baby, a dadgler party was what we called it. And so I got a bunch of my buddies to go to Vancouver. Um, They planned it. It was like a really fun weekend. We got a a chef. We pretty much just stayed at a house all weekend and hung out. Um, had great conversations. We did like business. It was lame by a lot of standards, but by our standards, it was fantastic. Well, Nathan, 24 hours before, realizes that his passport is expired. And he doesn't want, I mean, the amount of shame and shade he would have gotten from this group of people would have been through the roof if he had not shown up because his passport was expired. So What he did was he called around to figure out, is it possible for me to get a renewed passport in a 24 hour period and still get to Vancouver on time? So he got up at, you know, the crack of dawn and flew to Seattle where there is a passport office or whatever they call themselves, waited in line before they opened. And then he had to hope that they would have enough time to fit him in that day without an appointment. And so he was there, he waited, He went in, he told him his situation. They said, okay, you got to wait for a few hours while we like get it done. And he's got a flight to catch, by the way, from Seattle then to Vancouver. So he's like, okay, I'm going to like, I got, I hope I can make it. Anyways, long story short, he comes walking up at the airport a little bit later than we expected him. And we knew no better at that point. Uh, Other than that, we knew his flight had been delayed by a couple hours, um, 
but that was fine because he was going to get there before us to begin with. Well, it turns out as we were driving to the house, he gave us this whole story and that he almost didn't make it. Anyways, Nathan, sometimes, you know, he's a last minute person, but he gets it done. He gets it done. (laughs) But he gets it done. He gets it done. Uh, Noah's actual question was, is producing original work a worthwhile goal? either aesthetically or for business metrics. How and when, if ever, does a creator move from making derivative work to original work? This is deep. This is deep. Who asked, think, this, who asked this question? Noah from Provocateach. He is a teacher. All right. Let's, let's say, that, say that question one more time. Is producing original work a worthwhile goal? Either just like from a, an artist standpoint or for business purposes, business results purposes. And then how and when, if ever, does a creator move from making derivative work to original work? I mean, I can speak to the first, the first half, but if we look at creator sessions, right, as an example of that, I would consider creator sessions for business purposes, original work, right? Something that uh, we're doing, we weren't doing before and we're doing now and we're creating the script and producing, obviously, these episodes and trying to create a brand for creator sessions uh, for what it is. And I would say if I had to look at the YouTube metrics, right, for what creator sessions is doing, um, we're obviously promoting these within our ad budget. And the YouTube metrics are pretty staggering, like in a positive way, meaning like the length, the the key metric that I'm looking at is length of viewership through a paid ad. And when you have, you know, on, let's say just under, you know, 200,000 people watching a video and the length of viewership is over 20% for long form content, that's a really good sign. We're talking like 30 to 45 minute long form content they're watching to the completion of the entire episode. Creator sessions, the goal of that will eventually be to write, we're we're both targeting fans of the creator as well as creators themselves. And by doing that, we're getting like essentially top line leads, right? For people that we were never touching before and they're experiencing our content in its full capacity. I would say that's a pretty dang good argument for creating something that's new and different, right? For a Mm -hmm. software company. That's my answer to the first half. I agree with you. You know, the other thing I'll say is that uh, depending on what lens you look at it through, you could look at it as derivative. You know, NPR does tiny desk concerts like there's all kinds of companies doing companies and publications doing at home concerts. But for our space, for our industry, for our company, this is a completely new medium for us. And it's a completely new way of thinking about how you get software in front of people. And so I think part of the thing I want to do with my answer is to say, like, nothing is fully original or fully derivative. I mean, unless you're literally plagiarizing, like there's nothing that is fully in either bucket. And so there's a couple of different ways I would think about this. The first is when you're getting started as a creator, I think there's a lot of value doing derivative work or even straight up copying. Um, When you're trying to pick up a skill, for example, uh, one thing that is common copywriting advice is to take old classic advertising copywriting and write it physically with your own hand. Just copy it. By doing that, you get the experience of the flow of the work and the sentence structure and the emotion of what the copywriting was doing throughout in a way that if you just read it in passing, you wouldn't. A similar thing is done for design and code. 
One of the ways that Code Academy teaches, for example, which is a, a way to learn code online, mostly for free, is you build things that already exist. Like one of the first projects I did with them to learn CSS was to rebuild the Airbnb homepage. Is that derivative work? Yes, but it served a really important purpose of building skills and like understanding. For picking up skills, I think derivative work is really useful. And early in your creator career, maybe before you've decided even like what direction you're going to take things um, or what kind of business you're going to create, I think there's a lot of value. And then as you get more experience, I think you naturally start to create more original work because you have more set opinions and you have more confidence in your ability to create great things, which I think is part of why we had the confidence to do creator sessions was we had had these dabbles in different projects of short form documentaries, some advertising, doing uh, long form interviews with people. Uh, and all of that added up to be a combined skill set on the team that wasn't directly applicable to music, for example, but we knew we had some component things we could put together. And so that's the last thing I'll say is that uh, I'll call it stealing. Austin Kleon has a great book called Steal Like an Artist. If you steal from many different sources of inspiration, especially if they're not commonly applied in your industry or in your topic as a creator, it doesn't look like derivative work. Like you might be creating something that is um, like this person over here. Let's like my writing, for example, where am I all getting inspiration? Well, on one end, I'm getting inspiration from academic researchers because I think that being able to tie things back to data and fact gives people more confidence in what you do. Um, I'm pulling thing inspiration from Seth Godin, who was like a key mentor for me. And then I'm also pulling inspiration from kind of like the climate change, natural environment, ecology, like that world as like a, a form of writing and information and teaching that's really inspiring to me. And that all kind of comes together and like each element might be derivative, but the collective work or the end product does not end up looking that way as a result of pulling from different places. So I think our short answer would be yes, original work is valuable. And nothing is fully original or derivative. And the longer you go as a creator, I think the more confident you'll be in creating original work. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great example. In fact, in my brief that I send to people when I'm kind of pitching creator sessions, I say, think Tiny Desk meets Masterclass meets TED Talk. Like, and those are obviously three very well-known things that I, I know that immediately people are going to recognize, right? And they'll be like, ah, so they're just pulling elements kind of from, from each of those. And I'm sharing examples, you know, from each of those, as far as like things that we're looking for. It's a perfect example. And that creates something new. You know, if you watch a tiny desk concert, it's music. There might be a word or two in between, like there would be at a concert, if you watch a creator session, there's a lot of story. Like that's a big part of it is the story around the work and the story behind the work. And so you get elements of all of them. Okay. We're going to go all the way existential <laughs> for our last one, courtesy of Kaylin Huntress. Kaylin asked, what do you think most people fundamentally misunderstand? I'm going to narrow this to what do you, what do we think most creators fundamentally misunderstand? Hmm. I need to think about this one for a minute. Me too. I'm I have, I have a lot of thought. A I have a lot of places this could go. One of the first things um, I'll, I'll jump in with so that we don't just create a bunch of silence on a mm -hmm. podcast. Uh, hey, you got to be, you got to be comfortable in the silence. Right? I, I like am. I just think that this is uh, in a podcast <laughs> format. A lot of people just said, okay, I'm pausing and I'm <laughs> coming back to this later or not at all. Um, the first thing is that 
making a living and authentic creative work are at odds with one another. I hear this especially from a lot of people who grew up steeped in a creative environment where uh, creative work has inherent value. It doesn't need to have economic value to be worth doing. And I fully 100% believe in that. I did not grow up in that kind of environment, but as an adult, like I believe art creative work has inherent value on its own without ever needing for there to be a, an economic exchange for it. But I also believe that because it has inherent value, that means that it is worth economic value, that you should not shy away from getting paid for your art and from your creative work just because it should be able to stand on its own without needing a dollar sign attached to it. Like it or not, you need dollars to survive. You can do creative work and then go get paid somewhere else, or you can just figure out a way to make the two overlap. And I think some of the some of the most confident and authentic creators I know have gotten fully okay with that, like in their hearts and minds. They have, they have understood that you can do pure, authentic, creative work and get paid really well for it. And there is no cognitive dissonance between the two. I, I see a lot of people who live really healthy, fulfilling lives as creators that way. And I see a lot of people who live really frustrated, unfulfilled creative lives when they can't get over that dollar barrier, you know, assigning a dollar value to the work that they care so much about. Yeah, I agree with all that. The first thing that immediately came to my mind, I was trying to think of how I would phrase this, but I think it's, they misunderstand the market. They misunderstand how large like the market actually is as far as like what they're trying to pursue. And they use that as an excuse to not pursue the thing, right? That they're doing. A, a decent example of that could be Alexis Teichmiller has been uh, on this podcast. You've been a guest on her podcast. She's a former, you know, ConvertKit employee. And um, what's the name of her podcast? It's just because I'm blanking off the top of my head. The Happiest Life. The Deeper Life. Deeper Life. Yes. Yeah, so, sorry, Alexis. I hope you didn't hear me just butcher that. Uh, we are very good friends. So forgive me. Uh, the Deeper Life podcast. But she's kind of going down this Brene Brown path, right? She's doing uh, further education to kind of further her educate. <laughs> to further her education in that field. And a lot of people that maybe weren't as, I don't know, as confident as Alexis might look at that and they'd say, no, there's, there's so many people doing that. I can't do that. It might be my passion and goal, but I can't do that. But the reality is, is the market for things like that are just massive. That's just a very small example. But in, in business, Nathan, has talked about this several times. Uh, you've talked about this several times when you look at all the different email companies, right? And then you look at MailChimp and you see the number of users that MailChimp has. And when that's when people question our market as, as a software business, right? They're like, there's not enough creators out there. There's not enough you know, people that want to do our business. And then you look at MailChimp's business and you're like, if we had one twentieth of MailChimp's business, we'd be the hundred million dollar company that we're aiming to be, right? And so- I think people misunderstand, you could apply this, this example to thousands of different things, but uh, I think people really un misunderstand their market, right? They, yeah. they think that it's, it's too small. And as a result, it's a detriment to them actually trying to go do the thing they want to do. Yeah. That comes up as total addressable market in the startup world. And Nathan and I have gotten to the point where when people ask that question, a lot of times we just say it's sufficiently big because <laughs> like, who cares what the total addressable market is? We're not trying to be Facebook. 
we're trying to be reach our vision and like for example going after music as like a core part of our market um, people will ask what's the total addressable market and how does that compare to other opportunities and it's like well do you want to know how many people have published a song on soundcloud or spotify in the last year because it's a lot it's like many multiples of the total number of customers we have today and so to me it's like that's plenty big enough for us to go after that's for certain for creators as a market, it's like, well, how many people published a, a video on YouTube in the past six months? How many people published something actively on Instagram? Um, how many people did write and publish a song on one of these platforms? The market is so big, we can never reach all of it. And you could just take one of those numbers and know, okay, it's big enough. I don't care. As long as it's bigger than that, it doesn't matter. And you don't need to waste any time on it. But I agree with you. I think people underestimate the size of a lot of markets and the size of interest in uh, a lot of different topics. Um, the last thing I'll, I'll say on this one is uh, is more like tech company related. I've seen a lot of narratives lately that, that uh, are something like, you work in tech, therefore you are rich. And I find that to be really interesting <laughs> to me. Um, I've worked in tech for a lot of years and we're finally starting to do well financially, but I was poor and in debt for most of those years or for many of those years, I should say. And like, it, it was a, it, it went like this. Okay. I quit my well-paying consulting job and I went like this and I went way negative. And then I slowly, 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 slowly started to climb back up. And then it's grown a little bit more rapidly as ConvertKit's grown. And today I would still say uh, we're not rich. Like we don't have an emergency fund set aside in the way that financial advisors tell you to, like we're just now investing at the level that we should. Uh, but if someone looked at my title and the size of the company, I think they would assume that equals Barrett is rich and I'm leading the company. Okay. So that completely ignores. So that definitely means I'm poor. No, I'm joking. Convert no, it takes. but it means like <laughs> no, no. most people who work in tech just earn normal livings. Now, I think tech has a lot more resiliency to economic downturns. It's not as at the whim of, you know, like manufacturing disappearing in a downturn and things like that. And I do think people can earn better livings in tech than in a lot of professions without a doubt. Like if you compare an hourly worker um, in a service industry to someone working in tech, definitely. Like a person in tech is more stable, more well-off financially. But just because someone has founder or VC or employee at company in their title, it doesn't mean anything about their financial well-being. And I'm not asking for anyone to like give, you know, give a boo-hoo sob story about how, you know, how much plight tech workers experience. But it's just interesting to me that the perception has become that if you work in tech, that automatically means you're rich. Even people who are on paper rich uh, are often cash poor because the richness is tied up in illiquid. So to be liquid means you can turn value into cash, basically. A lot of people in tech who are rich aren't able to turn that richness into cash. And so they end up cash poor, but equity rich. So anyways, there's a lot there that you could dig into. And, and I think once you're in the industry, you really get a more nuanced understanding that you might not from outside. Yeah, I've I've been in I've been in the tech space for, you know, this is my third tech company. So I, I laughed. I, I laughed pretty hard when you said that one, because that's definitely not true. I mean, I don't have a COO title, you know, but no, ConvertKit takes care of me very well. And I am very grateful. And I'm sure a lot of people on this podcast know this just by nature of you and, and uh, Nathan having this conversation. But 
as a missional driven company, one of the, you know, the missions is you'll have to say it exactly how it is, but it's uh, to provide financial, financial stability, independence. independence, yes, to all its employees. So, yeah. Um, yep. And we actively try to understand what does that mean for each person? You know, does it mean not having debt? Does it mean paying off your mortgage? Does it mean having a set amount of money in your investments that you can maybe live off of at some point in life? You know, so that's our goal. One thing I'll say about this, though is who's the, who's the guy, um, software CEO that talked about taking a pay cut. So his employees, right. It was like, how do we not lay Uh, someone off? He's, he's in something. Yeah. He's in the news all the time, but Barrett would probably be rich if Nathan and Barrett didn't run the company the way that they do (laughs) in in that profit sharing is, is huge in the way that they take care of, uh, the team members. That is something that, you know, I, and I'm saying this as someone who's watched several CEOs run a company very differently and take care of their employees very differently. And so, yeah, Nathan and Barrett could be a lot richer than they are. But because uh, they choose to take care of me and the rest of my teammates, they're not as rich as they could be. So I'm very grateful for that. Right. Uh, but I wish more I wish more leaders would approach business that way. I think it would create a much more harmonious uh, relationship between the general public and business, government and business, like a lot of the things that put business and other, I'll call them stakeholders at odds, are business leaders making selfish decisions that don't account for more than like the profit motivation and their own compensation. And so you end up with all of these messed up incentives that do a lot of people poorly. I'd just rather run a great like a company that's great for everyone here seems like a lot more fun over the long term. This is a topic of conversation that I could speak on for a long time. So when you and Nathan, you know, have your podcast, your new podcast, it's been announced, right? I didn't just like let the cat out of the bag. I was going to say, I swear you announced it on, you know, growing a software company. I will be a guest on this episode because I have a lot of feelings about this particular topic, but we are it. 47 minutes in. So we I are. won't, I won't go down that, that rabbit hole. Um, I don't think I have, uh, no, I do have a creator of the day. Creator of the day. Do you have one, Haley? I have two. Great. Go. Do you want me to go first? Okay. Yeah. Anyone, I have been on here a few times and I think almost every time I have said something about a ceramic artist. So, you know, there we go. <laughs> Deal with it. Uh, yeah. So this is my new mug. I'm obsessed with it. The, that is a large handle. This is why I like it. So here's the thing. I'm a tall person in case you can, I know I'm sitting down. Barrett's short. I'm tall. Okay. So Indeed. I've got like a head on Barrett. No, not quite a head, but I'm, I'm like 5'11". Almost. I'm 5'11". I played college volleyball. So you can kind of get the, you know, but my whole hand fits inside this mug and it's just really comfortable. This is made by a ceramicist in Boise named, uh, it's clay K L E I. She's amazing. She has an entire line of awesome stuff. Really fun. I'm also giving you a second one because I can, and I'm doing it. I have posted this on my Instagram. I have said it today. I chose to release today's creator session episode in lieu of a different episode that was already scheduled and planned and fully edited because the message behind a lot of this music from this artist, Goldford, is so, and I, again, I want to say that so effing important for people to hear right now uh, as we like navigate 
the pandemic through the winter months and we close out the end of the year during the holidays. Anybody who's Grey's Anatomy fans, there was a song. Uh, it was it was during the second episode of the new season. His song is called Walk With Me. He performs it on Creator Sessions. And that song is just about being human and recognizing that we're all going to get through what we're going through together. And that's really the only way we're going to get through it. And that is honestly, that could be that could speak to what's happening in, you know, the racial divide that can speak to the pandemic that can speak to so many different things. And so I just really want people to listen to his music because it's so good. The other thing I really liked about him, (laughs) just creator session plug here is he's I'm not going to like guess his age because I didn't ask, but he did the whole PowerPoint thing. Like he, he worked in Chicago, you know, wore tie and a shirt, and then realized later in life that he could sing, wrote a song that ended up getting blasted all over Pandora when Pandora was kind of a thing. And that launched this totally different career. And he was in his, I'm going to get, at this point, he's in his thirties. I'll, I'll safely say he's in his thirties when this, when this happens. And that took a lot of guts. And I think that's a reminder. It's another reason why I wanted this episode. I was so excited about this episode because he's an example of someone who followed his path and big things happened because he had the guts to do it. So yeah, clay ceramics and I love it. Goldford. Uh, I love those stories of people uh, either having multiple great careers or hitting their primes way after most people would think of prime. Really, the only people who are limited by age in terms of when their prime can be are like professional athletes, maybe. Everyone else, you can get started pretty much anytime, which I love. Okay. Anyways, not to get all sentimental on you. My, uh, I am, I will say, hold on, before I get into this though, I am a little sentimental. I can't help it, you know? I love those stories. So I'm not even gonna say sorry for getting sentimental. You're welcome for being sentimental. It's inspirational. Okay, Dylan Tomine. Uh, I don't know if that's how he says his name, but I've been reading his book, Closer to the Ground. It's from Patagonia Publishing. It's an outdoor family's year on the water in the woods and at the table. They live up outside the Seattle area in Washington. And they just do a lot of, growing their own food, fishing and crabbing for their own um, shellfish and fish, foraging for mushrooms. And it is a core part of just like their family identity. And I found it really beautiful as a, as a parent. I mean, y'all probably know longtime listeners, like I love being outside. It is my restoration. It is my way to get away from the computer. Were there a way to make good money to support my family doing physical labor. I think I would prefer to do that over computer work. And so my next best thing is to get outside as much as possible. And just reading about this family who, you know, he's a writer, like that's his profession, but they spend a lot of time outdoors and enjoying nature together. And ultimately like producing fruits of that together through food has been really enjoyable. Um, So he's a good writer. If you enjoy being outside and you just kind of enjoy those nature type stories, you might like this one. Do you have a resource of the day? That was kind of my resource of the day. No, I mean, I kind of exhausted it with my like, you know, 25 minute rant about my creators of the day. So I love it. I'm going to pass buy on resources. Buy of a the mug day. from Clay. <laughs> um, also, it is it is spelled K-L-E-I. I definitely thought it was Klee. So 
Clay, you get it. I get it now. It took me a minute. In fact, I had to go to her studio to pick up some stuff that I had bought for a secret Santa gift that I then decided to keep because I (laughs) was worried. (laughs) I was really worried that my secret gifter or whatever gifty wouldn't appreciate the size of the mug handle (laughs) the way that I do. So I love it. Okay, we should turn it off now. Bye, y'all. Hope you have a great weekend. We'll see you on Monday. Thanks for listening to The Future Belongs to Creators. We're the makers of ConvertKit, where we're on a mission to help creators earn a living by building software that helps you build an audience of loyal fans. ConvertKit is the best way to launch or grow your next creative project. To start building your audience with a landing page and to send emails up to 500 subscribers for free, go to landingpage.new. That's landingpage.new to get started with the free ConvertKit account today. We'll see you next time.